Welcome to another month of Twin Peak Cinema. This month we're covering Vertigo. Last month we covered Laura. These are both part of a series called What's in a Name? Three months of, of a film each month that uh, had a direct influence on the names of characters in Twin Peaks. But often, as you'll see here, uh, there's so much more to uh, the connections than that, but that's what we use as a starting point. So in Vertigo's case, you have several characters taking their names from this film, but there's so much to talk about that this ended up being probably the longest episode, maybe outside of some that I recorded for patrons, connecting uh, Twin Peaks to actual David Lynch films, because obviously there's so much to dig into there. This is also just one of my favorite films in general, so I'm going to share some of my uh, thoughts on it as a film, also how it links up to all of the seasons of Twin Peaks and the film as well. It's a connection that just seemed to keep growing and growing the more Twin Peaks developed. Now, uh, as far as other podcasts go on my other feeds, I've actually tightened things up quite a bit. I was planning to really expand my approach this fall and one podcast, Lost in Twin Peaks, which is uh, not just an episode by episode, but like a category by category uh, run through of the entire series. Uh, that's just been very time consuming. It, it was all recorded beforehand, but I'm dividing it up for the public. It was originally for my Patreon. And just the re-editing of it, the cleaning some things up, the organizing it, creating posts to go along with it with screenshots and all of that has taken so much time that I've had to drop a number of other projects. But this is going to keep going month to month because uh, it's based off of material that I had previously recorded. So it's not any trouble for me to pull that up and uh, share it with the public. So looking forward to continuing this on its month-to-month approach as I originally planned. My other podcast, Lost in the Movies, was going to expand, was going to cover new releases and keep going twice a month. It's now just going to be once a month covering uh, older films, again, based off of of Patreon recordings. So going to keep that going, but not to the extent I had hoped. So I'll link both of those feeds below, Lost in Twin Peaks and Lost in the Movies, my other two podcasts. And let's now turn toward Vertigo. What was the strange attraction that brought these two together in spite of the dark forces that tore them apart? The specter from the past that drew her to the ancient headstone in the mission graveyard. The compulsion that drove her relentlessly to the point of no return story of a love so powerful it broke down all barriers between past and present, between life and death, between the golden girl in the dark tower and the tawdry redhead that he tried to remake in her image. If I let you change me, will that do it? If I do what you tell me, will you love me? Yes. Vertigo is a 1958 suspense film from Alfred Hitchcock. It has become his most celebrated movie or at least his most critically celebrated movie i think psycho might still be his most famous uh, and he has a lot of beloved films but vertigo was actually ranked the number one film of all time in 2012 in a sight and sound poll which is huge because for 50 years uh, citizen kane topped that poll and then suddenly here comes vertigo from behind over the years it had slowly climbed up the ranks and its moment finally came and over the years as its reputation grew you could see its influence on so many works i think even before it had really kind of taken off beyond being almost kind of a cult uh, hitchcock favorite you could see its impact on other filmmakers Uh, chris marker for example being a great example with his film sans soleil the documentary film actually that's you know not even an influence, it's a direct reference. It talks about Vertigo extensively and uses it to kind of organize the film in some ways. And David Lynch is no exception. He's always loved this movie. He presented the film, actually, on December 4th, 2006, which I found out when I Googled, you know, the names together. And I lived in New York at this time and was going to movies. Reg- I mean, this December 2006, like this was right around the apex of my like classic film going and going to see these types of events Uh, this one was at the IFC Center so I'm always kind of bummed looking back like why didn't I make it to this one my favorite film one of my favorite directors I hadn't seen as many of his works at the time but certainly Mulholland Drive was already a a favorite film of mine but alas I missed it so I'll have to imagine what he said there's no video online 
Uh, but even just looking at the film itself, you can see a lot of connections between his work and Vertigo and Twin Peaks in particular, although arguably Mulholland Drive maybe is even more of a direct connection. Maybe that was true. I think after season three, that's that's questionable. That may have supplanted that as the most uh, Vertigo-esque Lynch work. So let's talk about what's in the film itself. So to start with, for a refresher on Vertigo's plot, I've already recorded my favorites review as part of my archive series, and I have a pretty good plot description in there, I think. So I'm just going to play that again here to remind all of you who haven't seen it in a while or those of you who are listening who don't care about being spoiled. So here is the uh, what it is section of my favorites review on Vertigo, and then we'll talk about its connections to Twin Peaks. Vertigo, a feeling of dizziness, a swimming in the head. In the opening minutes of Vertigo, Detective James Scotty Ferguson, James Stewart, experiences his first but not his last trauma, nearly falling from a tall building, and then watching as the police officer who tries to save him actually falls to his death. For the rest of the film, he suffers from acrophobia, a fear of heights so debilitating he can't even look out the window of his apartment without collapsing. An old friend, Gavin Elster, Tom Helmore, offers him a job to relieve the tedium of his unexpected retirement. Elster's wife, Madeline, Kim Novak, has been acting strange. She may in fact be possessed by the spirit of an old ancestor, Carlota Valdez, an old San Francisco beauty who is scorned by her husband and separated from her child. This is a Hitchcock movie, and Hitchcock movies, however eerie and tense they get, don't usually dabble in the supernatural. Nevertheless, as Scotty immerses himself in the Elster mystery, he does seem to be uncovering a case of genuine possession. He falls in love with Madeline, an aloof aristocratic blonde, vowing to keep her safe. And then... Well, I saw the film without knowing much about it, and I'd recommend you do the same if you can. After losing Madeline, Scotty disappears into a fog of regret and anxiety, a catatonic state which, when he finally emerges, leaves him an emotional cripple obsessed with the past. He meets Judy, also Kim Novak, an earthy brunette, nothing like Madeline, except that she does look a bit like her. If just for her hair or her clothes or her manner of speech, Vertigo's trailer presents this character as a distinct individual, and the film could easily play into that expectation. Instead, Hitchcock does something far more interesting, something he hesitated to do, only acquiescing when his wife and lifelong collaborator Alma urged him to trust his initial instinct. With a good half hour or so remaining, Vertigo reveals that Judy is Madeline, or rather, there never was a Madeline, not one that Scotty knew anyway. In the recent documentary Hitchcock Truffaut, an interesting survey of the American auteur's method, the commentators all concur that Vertigo is, for better or worse, exclusively interested in Scotty's perspective. I find this opinion confounding. The big twist of Vertigo is that we learn Judy's secret long before the climax. Therefore, from this point forward, while we may sustain a lingering sympathy with Scotty, if we are paying attention, our sympathy is just as likely to shift, irrevocably, to her. This is a powerful subversion of the preceding film. As the fantastic recent episode of the Projection Booth podcast observes, Judy's flashback changes everything. Prior to Steven Spielberg, no director had greater name recognition than Hitchcock, but Vertigo perplexed critics and audiences. It remained hard to see for close to 40 years, finally getting a major restoration in the late 90s. Now Vertigo's star has ascended. In 2012, it became the first film in 50 years to surpass Citizen Kane on the Sight and Sound poll. Today it is regarded by a wide swath of critics as the greatest film of all time. Figuratively, a state in which all things seem to be engulfed in a whirlpool of terror. Like Twin Peaks, I first watched Vertigo without knowing anything about what was going to happen. So Twin Peaks, I actually saw not just not knowing who killed Laura Palmer, but even if they were ever going to answer the question of who killed Laura Palmer. I just didn't know. I, I heard that the show got canceled, and I thought Lynch never told, and that's why it got canceled, that there was no real killer, and it was all an open mystery. So that's how I kind of went into that series, as I recall. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's how I remember watching it for the first time. Same thing with Vertigo. I'd never read a plot description, and it was really exciting for that reason. Because when the film was about half over, I didn't know if it was about to end. I thought maybe that was it. And I kept waiting on the edge of my seat. What's going to happen next? Is there going to be a next? And there sure as hell was. And boy, was that amazing to watch like that. 
I find it's really brilliant, I think, for Hitchcock to have her write that letter after a whole scene diligently setting up a different, a very plausible scenario with Judy, that she actually is just another person who looks like Madeline. And you could have the whole film go forward like that. I just think that's really interesting. And I think it's akin to what Lynch does with Laura Palmer in a way in Firewalk with me shifting the ground onto her story. And I just find that fascinating. So it also makes me wonder, though, what would it be like for somebody to just watch the back half of Vertigo, to just like tune in around the time that uh, Scotty has been released from the asylum and he's just walking or the the home or wherever he is, you know, it's uh, walking around noticing women that maybe look like they have similar clothes or a similar car and then finding this one woman and like watching Firewalk with me without Twin Peaks, basically. What would that be like? I imagine it would be so interesting. And I had one film like that, actually, uh, The Parallax View, the Warren Beatty Beatty, uh, political thriller from the 70s. I tuned into that on AMC at the perfect, pitch-perfect moment, which is there's a montage two-thirds of the way through just a basically an experimental film shoved into the middle of this this Hollywood thriller where it's like images and words flashing at you. It's supposed to be brainwashing people. Like, that's why this film exists. And I just tuned into the brainwashing film. It was like, oh my God, what am I watching? And I kept watching, not knowing who the character was. He was wandering around, kind of following someone. So now I just have it in my mind, you know. So I went back and eventually watched the whole film. And it was so fascinating to experience that way not having any context. And so I always wonder, like, what would that be like for somebody uh, to do with Vertigo? And I even wonder, what about if we got to the ending and you watched like a different cut of it or something where, uh, first of all, she never, Judy never writes the letter. So you don't know any more than Scotty knows. And and then what if when he looked at the, and this is going even further with it, when he looks in the mirror and he sees the jewelry on her, he realizes who she is. What if we weren't privy to that either? So all we see is this guy starting to get unhinged and drag this poor girl up to the mission. Like there's so many different ways you could watch this film theoretically if you just cut out this little part of that little part that would change it fundamentally. And I feel like Lynch's work takes out that, I don't know if you'd call it interstitial material exactly, but like actually it's probably more expositional material where he's telling where Hitchcock's telling you something directly Lynch's films kind of take a scenario like that they cut out that part and they leave you wondering what you're seeing like there's a hidden explanation somewhere that you didn't get so that's that's kind of how I think of Lynch's work in relation to this uh, movie in a way the structure of Vertigo was followed for a lot of later Lynch films where you have almost kind of a redoubling and a retelling of the story with different identities switched around and somebody trying to relive and discover someone. And there's a real psychological power to this as well as kind of just an aesthetic puzzle box quality that people enjoy. There's something that hits you on an emotional level about it. I found a great article by Carla Loncar in uh, 25 years later, where she talks about Twin Peaks and Vertigo, Uh, you know, a lot of the observations I'm going to be making in this piece are not new. This, probably no other film has been discussed as much in relation to Lynch and Twin Peaks as as Vertigo. But she quotes uh, Slavo Žižek, the philosopher, in her piece, where he talks about uh, cinema, and I think specifically thinking of Lynch films. He's a huge Lost Highway fan, has written extensively about Lost Highway. Uh, He says, in other words, all series or films that deal with time loops and time travel reflect the evolution of one's mind in which the person finally succeeds in recognizing the source of their emotional misery. And there's something so true to that about going back to go forward or going forward to go back. I talk about this in my recent uh, video about David Lynch's and Mary Sweeney's work together, where I say Mulholland Drive feels like in a way, it's almost like the beginning of a Mobius strip. Like it took Lynch nine films to get to Mulholland Drive, but it feels like it was always there. Like it was the skeleton key to the rest of his work all along. You know, uh, it's just so fascinating how that how that works. Uh, and of course, his films themselves have that quality. And Twin Peaks has that quality where you watch Twin Peaks, you get to Firewalk with me. And in a literal dramatic sense, because it's a prequel, it was always there. But you also feel like in some way you always knew this story before you knew the rest, but on a subconscious level, and it's bringing it to the fore. So just kind of fantastic that way to think about. A Spellbound, uh, another Hitchcock film 
which I also loved as a budding Hitchcock viewer. It does this in a much more on the nose way where the psychology is actually explicit. Like the characters are actually psychoanalysts and they're like, in your dream, you're remembering that the skis made a line in the snow. I won't say too much more to, you know, give it away because it's a fun movie, but uh, it's, it's uh, not as well loved by critics. I've always enjoyed it, but I think there's a feeling that Vertigo takes that to a new, more subtle subconscious level. And in a sense, in Vertigo, Hitchcock is doing that to the viewer as well, not just the characters, where he's actually, and Lynch, you know, taking it even further, where you yourself as the viewer are going through this kind of process of recall, not in an explicit sense, like, oh, here's the character's uh, emotional trauma, but like you yourself are almost like going back to the beginning of the film or something like that. Uh, it's hard to describe, but uh, a pretty rich topic, I think. I probably discussed it more in my Mulholland Drive and Twin Peaks uh, connection podcast that I did a while back. So to actually go through all the Vertigo connections, I think it makes sense to break the series down into different parts and look at what each part, uh, each season really, and uh, some of the spinoff material and the film, what they have in common with Vertigo. So let's start with the most obvious you know, we're halfway through this section now. We're finally getting to the big deal here. Maddie Ferguson, that character whose actual name is Madeline Ferguson, is obviously a portmanteau, or I guess because it's not one word, uh, that's maybe not the proper term, but she's a combination of Madeline, the character played by Kim Novak, and uh, Scotty Ferguson, played by James Stewart. She's not at all like the James Stewart character, but just pulls references from both names to kind of hammer home the vertigo connection. Now, because of that, and because she's a brunette and Laura's blonde, and most of all, because they're played by the same actress, Cheryl Lee, Laura and her cousin, Maddie, uh, you know, the dead girl and the girl who comes to town to attend her funeral and sticks around. People thought, oh, okay, they're going for the vertigo thing here. Madeline must actually be uh, Laura. So a lot of people thought that would be the case. That plus the connections to, you know, other films uh, that that have a sort of a similar storyline. So there was just a lot going on there. Plus, the Maddie character is very down to earth. She's very she she doesn't have this like ethereal mythic quality that Laura had to her, much like Judy and Madeline. And she's made up by others and used as a surrogate for Laura. So uh, particularly Laura's friends James and Donna dress her up like Laura, put a blonde wig on her, and use her to kind of manipulate a psychiatrist character to think that Laura is still alive. And uh, the scene where she walks out of the shadows with the blonde wig on and James is just staring at her, that's straight out of the part in Vertigo where uh, they're in the hotel and uh, Judy, as dressed as Madeline, walks out of the bathroom into the light with a neon haze kind of cutting across the room. And uh, James Stewart rises and stares at her and it's this emotional ground swell of, uh, you know, a swell of the music and the cinematography and the editing, the background even changes where he feels like they're back in the last place that he saw Madeline alive. And so they, they're very much evoking that here way back in season one. Also, there's the predominance of Laura's portrait, uh, in this case, a photo rather than a painting. But, you know, you've got Carlota Valdez's painting here, just like you had the painting in Laura in the 1944 Otto Preminger film. So that's kind of a common thread between all of them. And you have the general idea of a haunting from the tormented spirit of a bright beauty who was treated poorly, uh, who's kind of both a victim and a terror. And you have that in the first part of the film, where already there's so many layers of haunting going on here. You have Carlotta haunting uh, Madeline, and or you think you do. And so that kind of, even before you get to all the plot twisty stuff, you have a sense there that uh, Laura, you know, that, that, that that's a connection with, with Twin Peaks. If you've watched Twin Peaks first and you're watching Vertigo, even in that first like half hour hour, you can see those connections popping up. There's a great line of Vertigo where Gavin Elster says, do you believe that someone out of the past, someone dead can enter and take possession of a living being? And here you have not just that idea of the haunting, but also the more supernatural kind of psychic hints that emerge in season one and eventually fully flower in season two, where you have Bob possessing Leland and Mike possessing Gerard and all of this stuff. So you have spirit possession in there as well. Um, sort of separated out in Twin Peaks a little more than it is here. The Red Room Dream positions the characters in a way sort of similar to some of the shots of Vertigo, even more so in season three, actually. I've seen frame, you know, side-by-side -side frames of uh, Madeline and and uh, Scotty where they, they look like they're kind of 
sitting in a similar way. Or actually, no, it was um, Scotty and the Barbara Belgetti's character, Midge Wood, who is his old college friend, which is hilarious because, uh, in fact, I'm going to look right here. I've got her name pulled up. Uh, James Stewart is born in 1908. Barbara Belgetti's is born in 1922. So they're 14 years apart. Um, actually, a little closer than I thought they would be, but still, like 14 years apart, and they're supposed to be college friends. Uh, this was the era of Hollywood where they were just casting actors who were well into middle age uh, as characters who were obviously written to be a little younger. But, you know, you have these cycles where these characters, these actors, these older male movie stars kind of age out and they haven't found a new set to replace them yet. So anyways, getting way off topic there. But there's the scene where he's in like the sanatorium or whatever it is. He's just sitting there comatose and Midge is kind of leaning over in his ear and stuff. Somebody put a side by side of that in season three uh, where he's in the red room with with uh, Laura, and it's very similar kind of compositions and stuff. And Barbara Belgetti's interesting too, as a side note. Her big role in her career was Dallas, which was on TV around the same time that Twin Peaks was still on, and was in some ways a template for Twin Peaks to kind of parody or tweak or take in another direction. So that's kind of a funny connection there. So back to the season one connections. Another thing with the red room is uh, the first place that Scotty sees Madeline is a red restaurant. And I mean a really red restaurant. Like it almost puts the red curtains, the red room to shame. It's so bright and 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 uh, just viscerally captivating. And it's really the first scene in the movie like that. Uh, particularly, you know, I watched a little bit of an older DVD. I don't know. Hopefully they've done a more polished uh, version on Blu-ray, but this one is a little dark and muddy in parts. But when they get to that restaurant, oh man, does it pop. You know, and so that right there, it it almost becomes a dream space in that moment, like the Red Room. This is a very lush, I mean, it's not a film noir, but if it was, it would be a lush noir. Same thing with Twin Peaks, where you have these kind of noir tropes of the detective and the following and the trauma and these hidden identities and the kind of the femme fatale and all of this. But it's done in a very uh, primary colors kind of way. And I should state that carefully. It's not like cheerful technicolor brightness it's like saturation like all green or all red or all kind of purple there's even points where filters are over it where it's flashing all one color i think during the dream sequence so it's like a very expressionist use of color in that way uh, just as with the film laura i think initially dr jacoby seems like maybe he is the character that most draws a connection to that film so in this film He's still obsessed with Laura after death. He's at her grave. He's kept a keepsake of her. They're even dressing Maddie up specifically to torment and maybe expose something about Jacoby. So, uh, you know, he he is that link. I think that becomes less so later. But e even in season one, it starts to shift more towards James. Like the first time he sees Maddie in the double R, he's looking at her in profile, very similar to how Scotty looks at uh, Judy the first time and kind of approaches her and talks to her. And that scene seems straight out of vertigo for sure. Now that said, so we, we can connect James and Jacoby in a way to Scotty, but Cooper himself really isn't much like Scotty, at least not in season one. You could probably find some unconventional connections to McPherson, the detective in Laura, but not so much with vertigo. Uh, except I suppose you could say that his relationship to Midge echoes his uh, or his relationship to Diane echoes Scotty's relationship to Midge, where it's a sort of professional male-female camaraderie relationship, uh, especially once the book comes out, My Life, My Tapes, you see there's more hints of flirtation there. And then, of course, season three will take that in a whole other direction. But for now, you know, it's supposedly platonic, whereas in Vertigo, it's platonic, but you know that she's in love with him and that Scotty somewhat knows this, and they've remained friendly over the years. That They were engaged at one point, they say, in college, you know, when she was 10. Uh, <laughs> you have to put the chronology aside for believability in this film. For season two, this is when Maddie starts to look more like Laura, so they're actually drawing out, uh, you know, the, the filmmakers themselves are kind of doing to Maddie what James starts to do to her in season one, where now, even when she's not dressing up as Laura, She's got her hair is styled differently. Her clothes are much more like Laura. Nobody's actually dressing her this way except for David Lynch. And this kind of starts to bring out a thing where you realize that the real parallel to draw between Vertigo and Twin Peaks uh, is obviously between Laura and, uh, you know, the Maddie Judy character. But between Scotty 
and David Lynch, not so much Scotty and Cooper. It's the behind the camera stuff, um, which also has parallels in Vertigo because Hitchcock himself was very controlling of the actresses. I mean, very darkly so as you go along with later films with Tippi Hedren, where he was actually controlling her career. He was sexually manipulating her, trying to, you know, get her to have a relationship with him, which she didn't want. So he was punishing her. So you can see a lot of Hitchcock's own kind of pathology in this film. And Kim Novak has said that when she was walking towards the camera in the hotel scene, she actually was projecting toward Hitchcock in a way because he was very demanding of how she looked and very exacting. She was not the first choice for this film. So there's a whole meta level to this as well. Uh, In Twin Peaks, obviously, David Lynch did not treat his actresses that way. Uh, but he, you know, in, in terms of being obsessed with this character and wanting to bring this character back to life and sort of manipulating the person to make them more like that character, you can see that so much throughout Twin Peaks. And then later in season two, uh, you have Leland's behavior with Maddie starts to feel more reminiscent of Scotty where he doesn't really want to let her go. I think that's why he kills Maddie because she says she's going to leave the next day. And uh, Cooper's relationship to Annie feels similar in some ways on a sort of more benign note to Scotty's relationship with Judy, where this vulnerable character that he's kind of taking out to these places, but very much has the upper hand with. Also, maybe more so Scotty's relationship with Madeline, with uh, when, you know, he thinks that he's with Gavin's wife. And there's a sort of a respect there that he doesn't really have with Judy. And they go out to all these locations, just like Annie and Cooper do. I mean, you know, these are conventions of any uh, screen romance, particularly the heroic character assuming a protective role towards this this young woman, but uh, to see it play out here after watching Vertigo, or watch Vertigo after thinking of that, uh, definitely brings it to mind. And I think the dive into the mythological lore at the end of uh, season two really echoes the Carlotta Valdez material in Vertigo in some ways, where where Scotty's going around to like bookstores and finding out, oh, this is what this person did back then. You can actually see that a little in the Access Guide that came out around the time, but especially the Secret History of Twin Peaks, written by Mark Frost, the book that came out in 2016, where he dives deep into the town history, and you get this sense of like a frontier town building itself up through these dynamic personalities with these wealthy people throwing people away and everything. Watching Vertigo, I was thinking, well, the location's not that similar. Yes, it's on the West Coast, but, you know, San Francisco, small lumber town way up in Washington, eh, not really. But the more you think about it, there really is a connection there because both are rooted in this frontier ethos of like the mid to late 19th century where you're founding a new place late in, well, relatively late in the country's development and it's a little bit anything goes and that spirit still kind of inhabits the place in some way where you feel like you can get away with something here that maybe you can't back east, you know. Uh, There's a little bit of a wildness to it. And of course, the long scene in uh, the Sequoia Forest in Vertigo very much calls to mind Twin Peaks' treatment of the woods and its reflection on these trees as kind of eternal spirits outlasting the humans and their foibles below. Now for Firewalk With Me, that's where one of the most interesting connections to Vertigo first comes to the fore, and that's Judy. And in this film, only mentioned a few times, mentioned by Jeffrey when he says, we're not going to talk about Judy, we're not going to talk about her at all. And we hear the monkey at the end of the film whisper Judy as it kind of fades away. And there are all kinds of theories about this. I've written a little about this, taken in some of John Thorne's thoughts about it. But uh, for now, it's just a name. And it spurred a lot of thoughts for a lot of people that would eventually uh, be, I don't want to say resolved, but would be followed up on in season three. There's also a great line from Vertigo where uh, Madeline says, it's as though I were walking down a long corridor that once was mirrored, and fragments of that mirror still hang there, and when I come to the end of the corridor, there's nothing but darkness, and I know that when I get to the end of the darkness, I'll die. And this calls to mind Laura kind of walking down that that corridor in the dream. Leland has never felt so Scotty-esque as he does in Firewalk with me, just the obsession, the controlling, the way he stares at her as he's holding her fingernails and things and or his, her hands and talking about her fingernails at the dinner table. A much darker vision in a way. I mean, Scotty is an intense kind of ruthless character at times, but he is somebody who was taken advantage of and victimized. You know, he, w- he was brought into this plot. He didn't ask to become a part of it. Um, whereas Leland, at least as he's depicted in Firewalk with me, seems more... Uh, He's in the throes of something, but he's the 
one kind of making decisions here. The ending of Firewalk with me, I've kind of found my way into another reading of it uh, with Renette and the angel feeling like Laura is projecting the angel subconsciously to save Renette. You know, if you've seen Journey Through Twin Peaks, you know my whole reading of that. Uh, but initially, for the first few times I saw Firewalk with me, uh, the ending just felt very dark and almost kind of nihilistic. And to me, Vertigo still kind of feels that way where you're watching it, it gets to the end and it feels, it's like inevitable, it's grim, it's more of a stop than a grand climax. It's it, Vertigo is one of those works, I don't think of it as like a perfect work, like the way I would think of maybe even Rear Window or something like that, where it's just perfectly polished, every piece kind of fits together nicely. It's a little bit more of a mess, kind of like Firewalk with me in that way where it's just so emotionally powerful, like this, the psychology of it almost kind of has its own logic that you have to follow to the end. And it's like, it's the end of the movie, drop her down, she's got to die, cue credits. <laughs> we just have to end on this morbid note. And it feels right, but it never, to me, I don't feel a sense of like catharsis totally with the ending. I mean, uh, maybe, maybe I do, because it's tragedy that's supposed to give you catharsis, not a happy ending. But just something about the way it happens is so kind of like, inevitable. I don't know. I, I can't describe it other than that. Um, the f another connection with Firewalk and Me, though, is that both films' reputation grew a lot with time. Vertigo was not a hit, uh, either critically or box office, for Hitchcock. Uh, certainly, the critics were kind of dismissive of it, and uh, he was kind of embarrassed by it for many years. And really, its reputation slowly began to emerge in the 60s. The Cahiers du Cinéma uh, writers in France were huge fans of it, who all, of course, went on to become directors themselves, and uh, they started to burnish its reputation. I think 1972 was the first time that it appeared. You know, it came out in 1958, so 14 years after. Uh, first time that it began to appear on the sight and sound lists, I think, and slowly inched its way up there until, again, it was eventually declared number one of all time. But still, even sometimes, audiences have trouble with it, I find, where they kind of don't, they just become exhausted by its convolutions, or they think that it's just all kind of a joke. Both films, I think, have grown immensely with time. And, uh, you know, look at Vertigo's trajectory all the way to Sight and Sound number one. It gives you high hopes for uh, Firewalk with me as well, I think, where that's a film that is just now, after 25 years, being accepted as a truly great film, making its way into the Criterion Collection. Still, I think if you talk to the average person who's even heard of it, they might have a kind of a mixed or a negative perception, whether they've seen it or not, but it's sort of on its way. And now season three. I want to start this off with a comment I found on Reddit by V1877. Uh, this was left just a few days after the finale aired, uh, part 17 and 18, and they wrote, Consider, too, the way that Scotty Ferguson's dream informs him of the murder, the motif of staring into paintings, and the classic line, you shouldn't keep a souvenir of a killing, and Lynch's zoom in on Mr. C's FBI hairpin. If you were to scratch away the acrylic paint of Twin Peaks' The Return, you'd find the pencil markings of Vertigo. <laughs> I mean, I love that analogy, but I also love that point about the FBI pin. I never thought of that. Uh, the way he closes in on that pin and what does it mean and why is it there. It's just a fascinating little detail. So to start right off with, season three is already more like Vertigo because Cooper is on his own this time. Uh, he's kind of on his own solo journey throughout. He's not part of this like police team that's solving a murder. And that right there is already just a big shift toward like a more noir kind of characterization, which again... People don't tend to call any Hitchcock film noirs. Uh, they're just kind of their own genre in a way, but certainly Vertigo has a lot of noir uh, tropes to it. Another element connecting the uh, two works is after escaping from the lodge, uh, Cooper is kind of catatonic in his Dougie state where he wanders around and can barely speak. And of course, this is what we see uh, from Scotty briefly. You even have, you know, Scotty, Dougie. That just occurred to me in the moment. They both have... Uh, diminutives for their names, both of them sitting there kind of unreachable by the people who care about them and uh, unable to recover and assume their forward quest until later. Also, on a lighter note, uh, the FBI sitting around 
in those rooms in Buckhorn talking over wine reminds me so much of Scotty and Midge. Like those scenes where they're just, you know, it creates, Midge exists in this film to basically be a normal character. There are no normal characters, quote unquote, normal characters, if you take her out of this film. I mean, think about it. You just have this detective who's kind of a loner and goes deep down this rabbit hole and this woman who has like five identities and this husband who seems like a nice lofty businessman, but a reasonable guy who turns out to be the most diabolical of all of them. It's like without, if you take Midge from that equation, and it is interesting that Hitchcock does take her out halfway through. We're kind of on our own. We've lost that reliable Girl Friday character at that point in the movie as we as we plunge further down and that's a very lynch thing to do as well in that sense i guess the uh, the fbi discussions they're just very comfortable and casual you're in kind of a comfy space there just like those mid scotty scenes and just like the mid scotty scenes you can't rely on that for too long the abstract sequences in part 8 and uh, also the swirls in the sky that you see over uh the jackrabbit's palace and the the shabby kind of fenced-in area in South Dakota, those big sky swirls, I don't know what you want to call them, the spirals in the sky, recall the spirals that you see at the beginning of Vertigo to kind of illustrate the character's sense of disorientation. It's a great, great credit sequence. Uh, Let me see if I can actually pull up who did it because it's so cool. Saul Bass usually does the title sequences in uh, Hitchcock films, but this one I believe was by someone else. You can probably hear me typing in the background. <laughs> I'm just going to keep going with it. Uh, I noticed their name right next to Edith Heads in the in the opening credits. Okay, actually, I stand corrected. The title sequence is by Saul Bass. Uh, the dream sequence, the nightmare sequence, is by John Farron. It says special sequence in the opening credits. So I was mistaken. I thought that was referring to the opening credits. But no, of course, this is Saul Bass. It's It's got to be, you know. So this uh, sequence, I think those kind of abstract shapes and those spirals, the whole movie through its very representational live action narrative filmmaking kind of evokes this vague subconscious feeling that the titles make explicit in a way. I see that as a lot of the relationship between Hollywood illusionistic filmmaking and more abstract, avant-garde, non-representational filmmaking. They can evoke similar states in different ways and Lynch experiments with both forms uh, inside Twin Peaks The Return. Also, Carlotta Valdez, this character, this bitter spirit haunting the present, feels a lot like Sarah Palmer to me, except of course Sarah's still alive. She's still present but absent from most of these people's lives. And that's such a fantastic conceit uh, in itself that I hope to discuss at some point. In part 17, that's when white knight syndrome, so-called, first really becomes, it really comes to the forefront. It's always been there for Cooper. And I think a lot of fans and critics and scholars and people have kind of noticed it or pointed it out uh, to the point where Frost makes it explicit in the final dossier book that came out after season three, where he actually calls it, he has Tammy Preston narrating the book, call it White Knight Syndrome, referring to Cooper. And of course, White Knight Syndrome referring to the idea that Cooper sees himself as this valiant, chivalrous figure rescuing these poor, helpless women. And uh, it's a bit of a... Well, there's a few things going on with it that that are kind of problematic, I guess you could say. And in Carla Lonecar's article, she writes about it like this. She says, however, in accordance with psychoanalytic theory, the Orpheus White Knight's object of obsession isn't the woman, but his own sense of impotence and insecurity, a realm of his personal metaphysical danger. And she writes danger as anger with a D in parentheses in the front. Scotty fell in love with Madeline precisely because she wanted him to rescue her from her fictitious demons. With her, he initially felt like a strong man not a former policeman who let his partner fall from a rooftop. Cooper's relationship to Laura contains a similar logic. Perhaps if he had truly saved her, she would have saved him from his demons, not the other way around. And this makes me think of Martha Nockamson's work on David Lynch, where she interviewed him, and at one point she asked him, why is it a woman that creates Cooper's kind of crisis of identity in the Red Room at the end of season two? And Lynch was quiet for a long time and then finally he said it's not a woman which is just a great lynchism but really resonates with what this writer's writing about here as well i think so that's part 17 part 18 is really the mother load of vertigo in twin peaks to start with we have cooper wandering around in a grim mood 
much like Scotty. You know, Scotty's never really a happy-go-lucky character, but certainly the last act of the film in particular, he's just sullen and somber. And even earlier, where he's following around uh, Madeline, he thinks, it has that same sort of energy to it, which Cooper himself usually does not have. This is something new in season three, and particularly new, I think, near the end of season three. So even in the early Lodge scenes, he has a bit, and you see it a little bit, I guess, in the season two finale. Maybe that's where it first emerges, this kind of dazed, intent following. But by the end of season three, there's like a grimness to it too, which is very reminiscent of Scotty at the end of Vertigo. You also have Diane becoming all the more like a midge figure here, this sort of reliable standby in, in the episode where she's waiting for him when he comes out of the red room, but he's still obsessed with this other woman in this other case, and she's accompanying him until she finally doesn't. So this is similar to a few different aspects of Vertigo. One is the letter that Judy writes, where she writes the letter and tears it up telling Scotty everything about who she was and what she pulled and then saying goodbye. In the return, Diane writes a letter that she doesn't tear up. She actually leaves it for Cooper and departs. So she gets away in a way that Judy didn't, which is maybe smart considering what happened to Judy. But it's also similar to, again, to Midge in Vertigo, who sees that Scotty's not going to come out of it, that she can't do anything to help him, and that he just doesn't want her. They're not right. And she kind of walks off and out of the movie. I mean, we get a sense in the last part that Scotty's got no friends left. He's got nobody left in this world. He's alone. And uh, probably my guess would be if Midge found out that he got out, which I would assume she did. I would assume she kept tabs on it. He just didn't want to uh, be in touch with her or something. Or maybe she left, moved away, needed to get out of town because now, you know, San Francisco's haunted for her too. By the end of this movie, anyone who's left alive is just like fleeing San Francisco. And then of course, we've got Carrie Page. So Carrie Page is, uh, if Maddie was kind of inspired by Judy's relationship to Madeline, Carrie Page is really almost explicitly related to Judy's relationship to Madeline. The interesting thing, of course, is here, at least as far as we know, and now we're getting into something interesting that I'm thinking of literally for the first time while uh, recording this, which I I don't think it works because there's a sense, well, let us say what it is first. Um, It's almost making me wonder what if Carrie is Laura and does know and she's kind of keeping this from Cooper, but going along with him. It actually doesn't really work. It was an epiphany that evaporated pretty quickly. I mean, first of all, when she screams at the end of uh, part 18, that's obviously coming from some sort of recognition or something that wasn't there before. Plus, uh, the way she reacts to Sarah's and Leland's name and the fact that she does go off with him, I don't think she's putting up an act, but it's an interesting thought to humor, at least for a moment. Let it let it linger in your imagination before it dispels. But yeah, I mean, basically Carrie in season three is what Judy pretends to be in Vertigo. She's a character who's much more ordinary, doesn't have a lot of money, has obviously lived a little bit of a tough life, doesn't have any clue apparently or interest in who this other romanticized person is that this inquisitor is on about but their interaction at the door the cooper carrie and uh, scotty judy is just my god like it's so evocative of vertigo just at a threadbare texas house instead of a uh, shabby san francisco a hotel or motel or hotel the energy of it the, the questions the everything and the big difference and this is something that, uh, that that Carla Lankar writes about in her piece is there's no real sense at any point that Cooper was in love with Laura. And that's interesting. It almost distills and purifies what the psychoanalytic kind of reading of Vertigo is, where there isn't even the pretext of a love and a romance. It's purely about using this female, this lost woman, as a way to purge your own demons or prove something about yourself in season two it's a little closer with annie because it's actually somebody he's in love with in this it's like no like you don't even have that so they drive in the car and they're just silent they have nothing to say to each other for hours on end in character time and some people would say hours on end and how it feels in terms of screen time i love that part where they're driving off but that too straight out of the end of vertigo where they're driving down to the mission along the coast it's pitch black She's looking at him, getting nervous. He's driving with this intensity. Same sort of energy here at times, just but a little more dissipated because there's no music playing. It's just quiet. And ostensibly, we don't think Cooper's threatening 
carry in any particular way, but it's like a more alienated version of that same scene. And then, of course, you have him taking her to, you know, the scene of the crime, the scene of the trauma going in. You have her hearing the voice from the house and then screaming. And this is something, and again, this is not pointed out by me. There was a BFI article about Vertigo. It may be from that. It may be from the Carla Loncar one. I did notice this on my own. I'll give myself credit for that, but I may have read these pieces before too. So I might just be recalling it. Cooper's pose at the end of uh, part 18 is almost exactly like Scotty's pose standing on the church with his hands open, looking down. And it's weird because why is Cooper looking at the ground and pointing? Like there's nothing there. It's really makes the most sense as a visual reference to Vertigo. And he looks up startled at her as she screams and ends the film. Like there's nowhere to go from here. Same sort of inevitable, grim, final, we got to just stop, stop the story here that I used to feel about Firewalk with me. Don't feel as much anymore, but certainly do feel about part 18 right now, given what we're left with. Who knows if there'll be more along the way. I keep saying there's a great line from Vertigo. Here's another great line. And Madeline says to Scotty, one alone is a wanderer. Two together are always going somewhere. And I think Peaks and Vertigo both seem to demonstrate this on the surface, where you have these characters getting together to solve a mystery in some way or pursue a case, investigation. And when they find the other person, um, you know, when Scotty finds Judy, now he's going somewhere again. He has a a purpose. But I think beneath the surface, it disproves this because what you really just have is two people wandering together, just as lost as they were before, thinking that their energy is pulling themselves, pulling each other uh, somewhere meaningful, but but really just forcing them to kind of confront themselves. Madeline has that whole sequence in the in the woods where she says, knowing that I'm going to die disturbs me. And the whole film is kind of filled with that existential dread where these people try to find meaning in each other and in who the other person is and in finding that person again and making that person into someone. But it's all a little bit empty. Uh, it's all coming up uh, flat because they're not really, ultimately, they're trying to look back at themselves. You know, the broken mirror in that corridor that, that Madeline talks about wandering through, it's not Carlotta in that mirror, it's her. And same thing with Scotty. He's looking at mirrors of himself and thinking that they're somebody else that he's reaching for. And here again, Carla Lonkar has a great connection that she draws with Lost Highway and Alice saying to Pete, you'll never have me. And it's that idea of like pursuing something in that manner means that you can never have because you're kind of otherizing it, you're making it out there and not realizing what you're looking for is inside in some sense. So you have all these identities nesting inside of each other in both of these works. And I think ultimately, one of the most interesting things to leave you with that in Vertigo, Judy is the key that unlocks this mystery, but she's not an ancient being, Jowaday from the Sumerian times or whatever, who animates the ordinary mundane life with these metaphysical. No, it's really the other way around. She is earthy. She's not elevated. She is taking that lofty ghost story of Carlotta Valdez and Madeline and this upper crust family and crashing it back down to earth. And I would like people to think about what if Judy is actually doing that in Twin Peaks as well in some way. That's it for this podcast. Next month in December, we will conclude the What's in Name trilogy. Before I play a clip from the trailer for that movie so you can see what film it might be, you might already have a guess if you think about it. Uh, but before we get there, I just want to say please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast, Twin Peaks Cinema, on Apple Podcasts. Uh, that means a lot. That helps share it, especially because it's a slower podcast. It's just a slow and steady once a month pace. It's good to get uh, as many people offering uh, feedback and recommendations as, as I can to expand its reach on that platform. Uh, the Apple podcast in particular is the big one. And also you can support my work by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash lost in the movies. One of the treats you get there in addition to monthly rewards um, for a dollar a month, you get a podcast that I'm kind of in the midst of retinkering now along with all these other projects that I'm streamlining. Uh, but it typically talks about Twin Peaks topics and will often review a film as well and just share some general thoughts. And then also for $5 a month patrons, you get 
my Twin Peaks conversations expanded each month. This is something I do on YouTube, where I, uh, I guess I should mention, since I didn't at the outset, uh, the last conversation that I had on that podcast was with John Thorne, the great Twin Peaks scholar who wrote the magazine Wrapped in Plastic. And we had a long three-hour discussion. I shared about an hour of it on YouTube, but two hours were just for the $5 a month tier. So that's the sort of extra feature you get uh, most of my Twin Peaks conversations each month uh, for $5 a month. And both $1 and $5 a month tiers have uh, advance uh, access to all or almost all in the case of the dollar a month. That's still expanding. But all in the case of the $5 a month tier uh, episodes of Lost in Twin Peaks the Twin Peaks rewatch or, you know, potentially first time watch. It doesn't have spoilers, but goes very in-depth in detail with that show. So a lot of great rewards as a patron. And uh, one thing is, if you like this podcast, Twin Peaks Cinema, you're going to immediately have access to my full Twin Peaks Cinema archive, everything I've recorded over the past two and a half years. These that I've released so far are just the tip of the iceberg. Every month I was releasing a film that uh, connected Twin Peaks uh, connected to Twin Peaks in some way. So there's so much more out there. Encourage you to check it out. Now here's what we will be discussing on the public feed in December. Hedda Hopper speaking. I'm talking from the bedroom of Norma Desmond. Don't bother with a rewrite, man. Take this direct. Ready? As day breaks over the murder house. Yes, you'll read the big black headlines about Norma Desmond and this Hollywood scandal. But you'll never read the true story about the rest of us who were part of it. The little ones that you never hear of, like Betty and me. The great ones, like Cecil B. DeMille. All those who knew Norma Desmond. A strange woman who left her mark on all of us, who crossed her path.